This is God first, then others, and so should you. Arguably not the catchiest sermon title I have ever written. Let's be honest, most of the time when bad things happen to you, it's your fault. That is, if you're anything like me. You see, I ignored my shed for years. This is two houses ago. I mean, three houses if you count the short-term rental. In between houses. And Nikki and I have cast that into the sea of our forgetfulness. So, in that house, right in the core of Burlington, little three-bedroom side split, we had a shed. And that shed was very old. It was older than me, in fact. And uh, it needed to be fixed. Now, those of you who know me a little bit know that I can build, kind of. This church is full of people who build expertly. And so whenever I come into the company of someone who builds expertly, I am well and truly and duly and rightly humbled. I can build, kind of. I come from a long line of preachers, not builders. In fact, famously, my father's father, Homer, who's now with Jesus, he died a couple years ago at 93. I'm so sad you didn't get to meet him. He's just the greatest the greatest, but he could not build. In fact, he's infamous for doing all renovating with one tool, an axe. He's like, what else do you need? Turn it around, it's a hammer. Turn it around, it's a saw. So that's how Homer built. So as you can guess, he didn't build too many things in his life. My mom's dad, Howard, who went to be with Jesus when I was 14, he died of a heart attack. We were at the cottage. If he'd been in the big city, he probably would have lived. What a brilliant, godly, glorious man. If you're listening this morning, Grandpa, I love you. He's the greatest. That man, he was small. I'm built like the Candelon side, but I preach like the Kerr side. Okay, Grandpa Kerr was, you should have seen this man in the pulpit. He was a maniac. I remember, I still, I can pick, close my eyes right now and picture him tearing up the stage at Lakeshore Pentecostal Camp when I was a kid. He could build. He was constantly building, constantly tinkering. He, in fact, rewired the cottage single-handedly. We used to pray to Jesus every year when we turned that thing on, right? He could sort of build. He was good with the Bible, but when it came time to build, not so much. So I inherited that weakness. So I'm deathly afraid of renovating. Anytime I have to do it, I procrastinate, sometimes for too long. So this shed needed to be fixed, and I didn't want to do it. So I let it sit, and I let it sit, and I let it sit so long that the raccoons moved in. They're like, this is a growth opportunity right here. This fool is afraid Let's move in. So by the time I got around to renovating it, I first had to deal with a family of raccoons. Now, if you've ever had to deal with raccoons, you understand that this is not a very fun proposition. I remember at one point I had chased most of them out, but like the one raccoon was hiding in the corner hissing at me. I think he was possessed by the devil. And I had a hose. I don't want to kill the raccoon. You know, I'm like, just because I'm a fool doesn't mean I get to kill God's creatures. So I'm spraying it with a garden hose and it's like hissing at me almost in English. Saying, you putts, if you just fixed this thing, we never would have found ourselves in this situation. That's my fault, right? Most of the time when bad things happen to you, it's your fault. You know, one time I stopped exercising and ate whatever I wanted to eat, and my belly kind of took over. You know, that was my fault, right? I left the shed to its own devices, and the raccoons took over. I left my belly to its own devices, and it kind of took over also. But that was my fault. Most of the time when bad things happen to you, it's your fault. You know, one time I listened to my wife and I started procreating happily with her and then my kids took over. You know, I was like, there's four of these things. They eat a lot of food. 
<laughs> you know, we went to the boat show yesterday, and my oldest son is 18 now. He's an adult. He cost me money to take him to the boat show. I got used to them being free. I posted it yesterday on Instagram. Lord have mercy. 60 bucks. But the, you know, that's also my fault. I shouldn't listen to my wife. I mean, my wife was listening to Jesus, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost. They said, y'all go ahead, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. My wife looked at those verses and said, amen. So my kids took over, but that's my fault. Sometimes in life, bad things happen to you and it's your fault. But sometimes bad things happen to you that are clearly not your fault. But the thing about those bad things is that you still have to respond to it. It's not your fault, but you have to respond to it. So the next time that happens to you, the next time something bad happens to you that is clearly not your fault, I want you to remember Abram and Genesis chapter 14. So look, this is not the part I'm preaching from yet. We'll get to that in a second on screen. But I want to read to you the first half of Genesis chapter 14, where we kind of set up the issue that Abram found himself in. This is out of the English Standard Version. Try and imagine it. Picture it in your mind. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elassar, Chedar Laomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemever, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Shidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedar Laomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, one year later, Chedar Laomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Ashterot Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Sheva Keriatayim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the borders of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Chazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Shidim with Chedar Laomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elassar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Shidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fled into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. Hear this, it's important. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, and all their provisions, and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom. Remember that from last week? and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, that's the first occurrence of Hebrews in the Bible, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshkol and Aner. These were the allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, this is the original 300, and went in pursuit of them as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Chovah, north of Damascus, that's up into Syria. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman, Lot, with his possessions and the women and the people. 
A few things to note about that. Interesting, right? They really want to make sure you get the names. Like, how many times can we read the names of these kings and where they come from? It's because the writers of Genesis want you to know that this story is not just a story, it's not just a fairy tale, but it's rooted in actual history. I grew up in Israel, and so I know most of the places they're talking about. In fact, I have played in the bitumen pits of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah are long gone, but the pits surrounding the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, are still there. So that's pretty interesting. Also interesting that some things change and some things never change. The kings of the south rebel against the kings of the north. The kings of the north don't like it. It takes about a year for them to figure out that the taxes have stopped coming from the south. Like, we're not going to accept this. And so they roll south because they got to get their money right. The more things change, the more things change the same. Now, Abram is just minding his business, living by Mamre's Oaks, which is kind of southwest of Jerusalem. And he gets wind of the fact that his nephew Lot has gotten caught up in this fracas. So what does he do? He does the right thing. He marshals 318 trained men. These are his choice warriors. And he goes in pursuit of the kings of the north. And he attacks them by night. This is the first instance we see of the Hebrews being very good at what we would call today insurgent warfare. They're going to meet them soldier to soldier in the broad daylight on the plain. They're going to attack them at night in the hills. That's what Abram does. He defeats the kings of the north. They're 318 men. Defeats them so soundly, in fact, that he pursues them to Damascus. The key moment happens at the gates of Dan. Dan is a city in the northernmost part of Israel. I've been there. I was filming there a year and a half ago. It still exists. And what's amazing about the ruins of Dan is that the gates of Dan, which were uncovered some years ago, actually date back to this time. So as I stood there underneath those gates, they're massive. They're as tall as the top of our screen, and they're as wide as this opening. They're unbelievable. Made in mud brick. And we were shooting it, so I was allowed to walk right up to them where no one is ever allowed to go. And i got to tell you, as I stood in the gates of the gates of Dan, I thought of my forefather Abraham. It's a real place. He goes, defeats the kings of the north, rescues his nephew Lot. First lesson, sometimes you've got to fight to do the right thing. It's not Abram's fault. He didn't pick the fight. But he had to fight to do the right thing. More on fighting in a few moments. I want you to notice, though, that even then, even after he fought to do the right thing, something bad happened again. We see here a pattern that should be of great encouragement to you as you seek to live your life right here in the fallen west. Something bad happens that's no fault of yours. You do the right thing and fight your way through it. You have some success, but even then sometimes things can take a turn. We see things take a turn in Genesis 14, 17 through 24. Have a look. After his return from the defeat of Chedar Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. Ooh, 
That'll preach in just a minute. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is how to respond when bad things happen to you that you had nothing to do with. There's your thesis for today's sermon. We see here in our section today how to respond when bad things happen to you that you had nothing to do with. Verse 17, after Abram's return from the defeat of Chedar Laomer. All right, he has a challenge. Chedar Laomer and the kings that are with him have kidnapped his nephew Lot and taken him north. This is a challenge. Abram responds to the challenge. He takes 318 choice warriors. He pursues the kings of the north. He defeats them. He has success. Challenge, success. And then on his way back south, he meets with another challenge. I want to encourage you this morning to begin to expect aftermath in your life. We think that we do the right thing and everything is going to turn up roses because we did the right thing. We see here in this biblical story that sometimes you do the right thing and things get worse again. Expect aftermath and don't get demoralized by it. Put even more simply, refuse as you walk with God to allow the difficulties of life to crush your soul. Refuse to be demoralized by difficulty. I think we can take one large step towards activating that refusal by expecting difficulty. How many of you know that what really hurts is when you're blindsided? Something hits you that you weren't expecting. So I'm here to remind you this morning that you should expect aftermath. You should expect trouble. Just because you do the right thing doesn't mean that everything afterwards is going to turn up roses. Expect trouble and learn how to deal with it. How? Primarily, the gospel. Look, the gospel is for you. What is the gospel? What is the good news of Christianity? Simply put, the good news of Christianity is that there is a God. You know, hooray. There is a God and He made everything that is, including you and me. It all started with our first parents, Adam and Eve. God placed them in a garden. Genesis 1 tells us that story. Beautiful place. Gave them each other. Told them to fill the earth and subdue it. Eat whatever you want. Just leave that one tree alone. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave that one alone. That's not for you. Perhaps you've heard the story that they were tempted. Genesis tells us it was a serpent. A talking snake. Whether that's fact, whether that's fairy tale. We know that the powers of darkness tempted our first parents. And said to them, did God really say? Powers of darkness sowed. That first seed of doubt in our first parents, Adam and Eve. And what did they do? They sinned against God. They rebelled against God. They listened to that voice of evil. And they took from the tree and they ate it. And as a result of sinning, not because of the fruit, but because of the condition of their heart, they fell into sin and they were then cursed and banished, thrust from the Garden of Eden to make it on their own in the wide world. That would have been a dark night. Dark night of the soul, that was the first one. And from that day forward, as they filled the earth and 
did what they could to subdue it in spite of the curse, suffering under it, toiling under it, laboring under it, in pain because of it. Every human being born into the human family was born with a sin nature, was born in rebellion against God, prone to do the wrong thing, prone to choose self over others, prone to disobey, prone to arrogance. I mean, you name it, name your pet sin, prone to it because of that first fall, curse and banishment. And this would have been a terrible thing for the God of the universe to have made humanity in his image and likeness to be his friends forever to have left them alone in that dark night of the soul, to grow up into history separated from Him. See, God's holy. He can't tolerate sin in any form, but He must punish it. You may not like the idea of justice until an injustice is performed against you, and then you love the idea of justice. Right? So anyone who reacts, there's no such thing as sin. Jesus has already forgiven you. Sin against them real quick. Like, slap them. You know? Just a little sin. (laughs) Right, and they'll be like, "Why'd you do that?" <laughs> to make a point that evil is real, <laughs> sin is real. I just sinned against you. Please forgive me. Jesus has forgiven me. He can forgive you also. Right, holy God's got to punish sin. Right, He's just. He's righteous. He does the right thing in any given situation, and it is not right to let sin grow unabated. It is not right to let evil run unmolested. So God is now separate from his people, and this is the travesty of all travesties. But the gospel is this, God did not leave us alone, but in the fullness of time, according to his wisdom and mercy, as prophesied by the ancients, he sent his one and only son, God the Son, second member of the Trinity, into space-time history to live as a man, fully God and fully man, to be tempted in every way in which you'll ever be tempted, yet to remain without sin, to perfectly fulfill the will of the Father. He sent His Son to one day suffer in ways in which you'll never suffer. As Jesus, God the Son made flesh, hung on a cross between two thieves, and God the Father laid on Him, as the Scripture teaches, the iniquities of us all. All your sin and mine, all the sins of the world throughout all time, laid upon God the Son in that moment, and God the Father punished Him in your place for your sin. And God the Son died. The story of Easter tells us he did not stay dead. He lay in a borrowed tomb three days by the Jewish calendar. And Sunday morning, that first Easter morning, he rose again in power, defeating in his body the power of Satan, sin, death, and hell forever. The ultimate, na, 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 you can't catch me. And he rose again in power and glory and appeared to his friends. And he ate with them and talked with them. After spending some time with them, he ascended right in front of their eyes into heaven. You can imagine that would be pretty strange if we saw that. So an angel came to help them out and said, don't worry, he's coming back. (laughs) In the same way that you saw him go, he'll be back. Just go and wait for the promise from on high. What's that? That's the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit fills you, then you'll be filled with power to go and share this story with the world. And clearly, it worked. Because 2,000 years later, here we are still trumpeting about that Jesus. And not just us, but us and 4 billion, 3.5 billion Christians on the earth at this moment, placing their hope in a story that seems foolish to them that are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it's everlasting life. A silly story that works because it's true. And the evidence is in me and you. Hey man, if that story is true, that'll help you deal with some difficulty, right? I think so. 
I think so. The gospel tells you that your story ain't over. The gospel tells you that your future is bright. The gospel tells you that your present has meaning, even your pain. The more Jesus you have in your life, the less you'll be undone when life ambushes you. And that's what happens in our text. Look at verse 17. Then the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. I mean, you would read that and think, whatever, he went out to meet him. Maybe he's there to say hi. Maybe not. How do I know? Well, I grew up in Jerusalem. I used to ride my BMX through the valley of Shaveh. The valley of Shaveh is the king's valley. It's the valley on the east side of Jerusalem. It's Jehoshaphat's valley of decision. So depending on how that eschatological story works itself out, we may all find ourselves hanging out in that valley someday before the judgment seat of Christ. And if I see you there, I'll show you where the best place is to sit so you can have a good view. This is my playground. I grew up there. There's a tomb there called Absalom's Pillar. Traditionally, it was uh, considered the tomb of Absalom. We know from archaeology that it's really a Byzantine tomb. But it's cool to call it that, Absalom's Pillar. And there's a big tomb next to it that's the tomb of the priestly family of Zechariah. A priestly family that actually occurs in the order in the Old Testament. That's pretty cool. You're like, that's the real spot. So I used to play there in the Valley of Chauvet, the Valley of Decision, the King's Valley. And I know that the King's Valley is a bottleneck. If you were to wander into the King's Valley from the northeastern part of Jerusalem, it's an Arab part of town, and it's a part of town that I, as an Anglo-Saxon, blonde, male, indoctrinated in Judaism, Growing up as an Israeli, didn't really ever go. But I know it. If I have to drive through it today, I drive fast. So it starts there at the northeastern side of the city, and it bottlenecks down through the King's Valley. It spits you out in Silwan, which is kind of the hotbed of Palestinian resistance in the city of Jerusalem. It's also the home of the city of David, the original Jerusalem. So when you know it, that's where I spend most of my time when I'm in Israel. On the one hand, I love it. On the other hand, it's very hard to be there because it's such a flashpoint of unrest. But that's what you have at the southern end of that bottleneck. And that is where the king of Sodom, which is southeast of this location, would have worked his way up to. Following the valleys up to Jerusalem, it would spit him out at the foot of the king's valley. And there he waited. Why did he wait there? Because there would be no way for Abram to avoid him. It's a bottleneck. In fact, let me show you. Here's a picture of the king's valley. So you're looking at Jerusalem. Recognize it? Right? Is it there? I don't want to turn around. It would be way cool if it was there and I didn't even look at it. Is it there? Not at me. Word up. Okay, so you see Jerusalem. You see the Dome of the Rock. That's where the temple used to sit. The Dome of the Rock is actually built over the rock that used to sit at the heart of the Holy of Holies in the temple. You're like, why would they build that there? On purpose. Right? I'm speaking like a Jewish nationalist. Don't worry, I'll calm down. Okay, so that's the third most holy site in Islam. The Silver Dome is the Al-Aqsa Mosque. That's the second most holy site in Islam. Second and third only to Mecca. Okay? On the left side of the Dome of the Rock, you see those uh, trees up on the left side. The section just south of those trees is the Wailing Wall. That's the last remaining wall of the temple. That's the holiest site in modern Judaism. It's pretty epic. This is Jerusalem. It's my hometown. I grew up just on the left-hand side of frame. On the right, see this green part? That's the King's Valley. See how it's a bottleneck? If you enter in up at the northern, eastern side and work your way down the valley, you can see how there would be no escape. 
even today, that valley is, I don't know, the hills on the left side are probably 200 feet high. And modern Jerusalem, that valley is full of the refuse of thousands of years of conquest. So most of the archaeologists I've talked to say that the King's Valley used to be probably 80 to 100 feet deeper. So it's literally like a river gorge. So you need to picture the King of Sodom waiting where this gold rectangle is at the bottom. And Abram working his way down and kind of at the part where the white rectangle is, just a little bit south of there, is where the king of Salem would have stood to watch. So see the narrowest part of the valley in the middle there? Nod at me if you see it. Okay, so right up to the left of there is the city of David. So that spur of land to the left is the original city of David. And Jebus, the original Jebusite city, was located right there on that spur. And so the king of Shalem, as he's watching these events unfold, is standing right up there on that spur, looking down into that narrowest part of the valley, where the army of the king of Sodom is waiting here on the bottom right, and Abram and his 300 men are working their way down the valley. It's helpful, right? It's an ambush. Abram's heading south. The king of Sodom is waiting for him. Why? Because he wants what's his. He wants what's his. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, is watching all this unfold from the walls of Salem, which will one day become Jebus, which will then be conquered by David and renamed Yerushalem, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The point for you today is that life is going to ambush you once in a while. Poor Abram, right? War overtakes his family. It's not his fault. Goes and saves his nephew. He's coming back. And now one of the kings who was defeated by the kings that he just defeated is ambushing him because he wants what's his. We read in the early part that the kings of the north sacked the kings of the south and took everything that belonged to them north with them. So when Abram defeated the kings of the north, the stuff that he took from them belonged, of course, to the kings of the south. And if you were the king of Sodom, wouldn't you be like, I want to get my stuff back. If I know anything about Abram, he's going to come down through the king's valley and we could trap him there. Life's going to ambush you sometimes. Here's the really teachable point. Don't worry about saving yourself. Oh, wait for the king of righteousness to step in with bread and wine. Oh, this is the best day of my life. Look at verses 18 through 20. This is the best thing I've seen in a long while. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, who brought out bread and wine. Oh, I've got to stay quiet, but I could dance a little bit. Oh, he was priest of God Most High. Next slide. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. I mean, let's read this in vernacular English. And the king of righteousness, king of peace, brought out bread and wine. I mean, I know I'm interpreting it a little bit prophetically, but come on now. The king of righteousness, the king of peace brought out bread and wine on the night the Lord Jesus was betrayed. Together with his friends, he took bread. And when he had broken it, he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take this and eat it and remember me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many. Take this and drink it and remember me. The New Testament further tells us that Jesus Christ was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's the best day of your life. You don't got to save yourself. Somebody shout. You don't got to save yourself because the king of righteousness is on his way out with bread and wine. I could drop the mic. (sighs) 
Is that the best thing you've seen in like a long while? Hallelujah. Woo. How could you not celebrate that? Look, church, respond to being ambushed by expecting Jesus to save you because he's already saved you with his broken body and his shed blood. <laughs> and God already knew it, which is why he set these events up. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. You respond to bad things that happen to you by remembering that in Jesus, you're already blessed. Like Abram. Let me read you verse 20 in the Hebrew. Just so you can hear the power of it in the original language. Okay, so verse 20 is on screen, so you can see it in the English, right? So we're starting right there. Oh. He blessed him and said, Blessed is Abram to God Most High. Again, we keep getting sold down the river by the English interpreters. Blessed be Abram by God Most High. Looks like it's transactional blessing, right? Like God's blessed Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High. But then you read it in the Hebrew, and it says, <laughs> And anyone who knows Hebrew knows that that means blessed be Abram to God Most High. And whenever you read the Hebrew like this, it's always a double entendre. So in the Hebrew, it means, yes, blessed be Abram by God Most High. But at the same time, Forgive me, it was going to run down my face and like, that wouldn't have been pretty. At the same time, it also means blessed be Abram to God most high. Abram is a blessing to God. That's why he's blessed. Abram is a blessing to God. That's why he's blessed. The point for us is this. You exist not to be blessed, but to be a blessing to God. That'll change your life right there. Your purpose is to please the God of heaven. This is why the more self-focused you are, the more miserable you will find yourself being. Why? Because you're living contrary to the reason for your existence. Why am I so um, unhappy and dissatisfied all the time? Because you're wasting your life on yourself. Somebody say something. You know somebody like this? You're wasting your life on yourself. Don't waste your life on yourself. Man, reorient your life today if you want to be happy and fulfilled. There's only two laws still in force, as I understand it, post-Jesus. And those two laws are the laws of selfless love of God and of neighbor. It's contained in Matthew 22, 37 through 40. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus himself said this. So if you want the blessed life, be a blessing to God by selflessly loving him and selflessly loving your neighbor. And he'll take care of the rest. Verse 20. Who has delivered your enemies into your hand? I mean, the symmetry of the biblical text is to be marveled at. God will take care of the rest. Now look, it's difficult territory, so don't be angry at me about this. And if you want to talk about it, I'm happy to talk about it. 
I know some of you might be a pacifist, or you might know people who are pacifists, but clearly in our text today, we see that God is not. Where do we see that? Well, God delivered Abram's enemies into his hand, and Melchizedek, who was priest to God Most High before there was a priesthood, which is also awesome, by the way. Next time you feel legalistic, remember Melchizedek, who was a priest to God before God even had a people. <laughs> That's awesome. Right? Sing the old brethren hymn, There is a Wideness in God's Mercy. Right? We need to be prepared to be surprised. We need to remember that we see now as through a glass darkly, but then face to face, now we prophesy in part. Right? But then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. I, I mean, I could preach a whole separate thing on that. Okay, so here we see God defeating Abram's enemies. He delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. This is the eternal, unchanging God of the Bible who puts a whooping on the kings of the north pre-incarnation in Abram's time. This is the same God who in his incarnation as God the Son, Jesus Christ, recorded in Matthew 5, teaches his followers to turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, and love your enemies. You're like... This is the same God who is coming back as the exalted Christ, if the prophecies and visions of Revelation chapter 19 are true. I love this part. Riding on a white horse, his eyes like flames of fire, many crowns on his head, his robes dipped in blood, an army at his back, a sword coming out of his mouth, which which to strike down the nations, and a rod of iron in his hand with which to rule afterwards. And his name is tattooed on his thigh, and it says, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's your Jesus. It is exaltation. So hopefully this makes it difficult for you to put him in a box. Hopefully this makes you resonate with C.S. Lewis, who so powerfully tells us that he is not a tame lion. Don't think you got him cornered. Oh, he's definitely this. Oh, he's definitely that. He's definitely this. He's, he's definitely that. You know, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth. I'm going to look to Scripture. I'm going to see a picture of Jesus there. If it amazes me, if it perplexes me, if it causes me to shout glory in my spirit, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to stop trying so hard to figure him out, and I'm just going to worship. Whoa. That'll preach. Look at verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first tithe. This is an act of worship. Don't get it twisted. He's not worshiping Melchizedek. Melchizedek is only the priest of God Most High, who has just blessed him, invoking the name of God Most High and declaring that the blessing that Abram is walking in is a result of the goodness of God Most High. And so in a responsive act of worship to the goodness of God Most High, Abram pays a tithe of everything he had to Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Some Christians have rude that day ever since. <laughs> this is tithing as worshipful, thankful response. I want to point out how Abram's not overthinking it. He's not like, we should, you know, work up a treatise on what biblical generosity looks like. Let's talk. No, he, he responds. He, he's, he's like, quick, quick, take ten, one-tenth of everything. Bring it to this king. This is my act of worship. 
He just responds tangibly in worship. His practical generosity is evidence of his worshipful and thankful heart. Man, it's the king of Sodom who overthinks it. Look at verse 21 through 24 as I close. The king of Sodom pipes up and says, wait a second. Give me the people, but take the goods for yourself. (laughs) But Abram said, no way. I've lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abram rich. I'll take nothing but what my young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let my homies take their share. Next time, the urge rises up in you to overly calculate the tangibility of your worshipful response to Jesus, yes, specifically when it comes to money, rebuke it, and remember the king of Sodom, who's the one who piped up and said, wait about, what about my share? What's in it for me? How much do I get? How much do I get to keep? Look, Abram had every right to keep the spoil. He won it fair and square in war. But he cares more about God's fame. Worship team, I'm done. Come join me. He cares more about God's fame than he does about his bank account. Lest you should say, he says to the king of Sodom, that I have made Abram rich. He says, look, I'll take what we've already eaten on our journey south. I'll take that. The share that my men have, let them keep that. My homies, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, my boys, my allies, let them keep theirs. But everything that's mine, go ahead and take it. Because God's fame is more important to me than my wealth. God first, then others. That's how Abram lives. That's how Abram responds when bad things happen to him that were not his fault. And so should you. And so should you.